When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for Start Making Sense comes from Swing Left. We've said it here many times, it all starts with the House. If progressive candidates win in just 23 swing districts on November 6th, we can take back a majority in the House of Representatives and finally put a check on Donald Trump and the people in power who are supporting him. That's why nearly half a million people have signed up to volunteer with Swing Left. When you join Swing Left at swingleft.org slash sense, you'll be connected immediately with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the race in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact. We can flip the house. It's really that simple. Each of us has the power to change our country and save our democracy, but only if we do the work to take back the house. So don't just vote this year, volunteer. Join the grassroots movement that's changing things in this year's midterm elections. Sign up now at swingleft.org backslash sense. That's S-E-N-S-E. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll consider some alternatives to those old white Republican men who shouted and pouted at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing last week. D.D. Gutten plan will talk about the rise of a new radical majority. Also, while the eyes of the nation search for news on the FBI investigation of Brett Kavanaugh, the hard work of fighting for social change goes on. For example, in my hometown of St. Paul, where a campaign for a $15 minimum wage is underway right now. Michelle Chen will report. But first, maybe you heard the news. The FBI reopened its investigation of Brett Kavanaugh after Republican Jeff Flake said he would not vote yes to confirm Kavanaugh unless they did. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a CNN political analyst. She's also the author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reach her today in New York City. Joan Walsh, welcome back. Well, thanks, John. On Sunday, the Democrats were calling this new FBI investigation, quote, a farce. Those complaints seem to have worked because on Monday, the White House authorized the FBI to expand its investigation by interviewing, quote, anyone it deems necessary as long as the review is finished by the end of the week, close quote. But then later on Monday, Mitch McConnell said he intends to hold a vote on the nomination, quote, this week. What do you make of the current reports on the FBI investigation? Well, they're very uh, contradictory and confusing. I don't have a lot of confidence in it, if only because one week is too little time to deal with the, the, you know, the number of allegations, how long ago they were. But you know, it was a positive step. First of all, celebrate small victories. 
as of Friday morning, it did not look like this was going to happen. By Friday afternoon, when Senator Flake and Senator Coons came up with this, quote, compromise, that was that was important. That was a big deal. But as you said, we've we've had a weekend and now a couple of days into a, a new week where we can't get real firm answers on what the guidelines are and who's being interviewed. So I remain skeptical. Um, I remain very concerned. And I think, again, it's on Senator Jeff Flake. And to uh, to an extent, uh, the two female Republican senators, uh, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, to say, hey, this investigation looks like window dressing. This investigation looks like you just went through the motions to appease us, but we're not happy with it, if indeed that's what it looks like. And and Senator Flake, I don't necessarily trust him because he talks a good game so often and then he caves, but he has said that he does not want it to be mere window dressing. He's said if it's proven that Brett Kavanaugh lied to the committee, that should be disqualifying. And many reporters have proven uh, that he did lie and archived his many lies. So if Senator Flake is sincere and sticks to his word, I don't think they have his vote. Uh, it's, it's the question of what the two female senators will think. I want to go back to what you said about celebrating victories because Trump and the Republicans did everything they could to rush the hearings and force a vote last week. Delaying it even by one week was, as you say, a, a victory. Let's look for a minute at how it happened, how Jeff Flake changed his mind. And what we know about that is that that scene where he was confronted in that elevator on the way to the committee vote by two young women Anna Maria Arquila and Maria Gallagher, while the cameras were rolling, they are our heroes. It's completely amazing in a world where, you know, money is everything in politics and the Republicans have been turned into the party of Trump that two women could could do this. I agree. I, I think they are heroes. I think that it made an enormous amount of difference. Senator Flake has said as much himself I think some Republicans have been playing gotcha with the fact that, that both women are activists. Well, duh. Yes, we do have an activist community yes. around issues of sexual assault and trying to get these claims taken seriously. So nobody was ever trying to hide this. No one pretended they were two ladies who just happened to walk by Senator Flake on their way to tea. They are activists. They are smart. They are hardworking. And they got a hearing. And he himself has said it mattered. I think it also mattered to him. And other senators have said the same thing. You know, they were getting, they were getting texts and phone calls and emails from women friends who were telling them. I mean, Senator Flake said this, uh, actually Democratic Senator Chris Kuhn said this as well. They were hearing from women that they were even close to who had never told them about sexual assaults in their past, but who felt compelled by the bravery of Christine Bloody Ford to come forward and tell those stories. So those two fabulous women, as well as the women in the lives of these senators who risked 
coming forward about something that that we're we're all conditioned to be ashamed of and to keep quiet about and to blame ourselves for. They are the heroes and they made a difference. You talked about Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, the Republican women who we hope will vote no on this, along with Jeff Flake. Of course, there were also two Democrats who, as far as I know, have not yet, as of this hour, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, committed to voting no. Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota, Joe Manchin, West Virginia. What can you tell us about where uh, Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Manchin stand now, and can we count on them? I wouldn't say we can count on them at all. I will say that Senator Heitkamp has an opponent who's been, uh, let me use a, a very complicated term, rather a pig about these allegations, essentially saying that it doesn't matter if they're true, Kavanaugh should be confirmed anyway. This is high school. This is, you know, boys will be boys. And Senator Heitkamp has wrapped him on that. She's She's made a campaign issue of it correctly, I believe. So I personally take that as a signal that she will vote no. Senator Joe Manchin is a tougher case. He is about 10 points ahead. Uh, Let's just let's take a moment and applaud the bravery of Indiana Senator Joe Donnelly, who, while all of this was bubbling and boiling on Friday morning and afternoon, he came out and said he would vote no on Judge Kavanaugh. That's hugely risky for him. Many people consider him our most vulnerable Democratic incumbent. But he heard Dr. Blasey Ford. He heard the other allegations. And maybe as important, he saw the belligerence and scorn uh, and cruelty with which Judge Kavanaugh treated senators on Thursday. And he said he would vote no. So then let's just bring Joe Manchin into sharp relief. West Virginia senator up 10 points. His supporters were floating the notion on Friday morning. He officially came out and denied it, but people who know him and reporters who cover him were saying he was a yes. Now, then we had the one-week pause, and now we have an investigation. But if I were making phone calls, I'm not an activist in that sense, but were I an activist, I would spend a lot of time calling Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and saying, don't you dare vote for him, because I think he is a weak link. You know, we have a lot of women candidates more than ever before. I know you've been reporting for The Nation on how women candidates have been dealing with Kavanaugh on the campaign trail. What can you tell us about the last couple of days? Well, it was hugely therapeutic to leave Washington, D.C. Thursday night and land in Atlanta, Georgia on Friday morning and hook up with some amazing women candidates who are running. Uh, Stacey Abrams is running for governor. Uh, Lucy McBath is running uh, for Congress in the Georgia 6th District. And there are some great women running for state, Georgia State House and Senate uh, who were really depressed on Thursday but energized on Friday and Saturday and really rode this wave of female, renewed female anger all weekend as they were campaigning. I knocked on doors and I went to canvas locations and I I heard what they heard and I felt what they felt. And uh, it felt pretty amazing. It felt like women are using this 
not to be depressed and take to their beds, but to take to the streets and knock doors for their candidates. And the candidates themselves told me that they felt a wave of renewed energy. It's already seeming shaping up to be a good year for women, but that this led to renewed activism and new levels of folks turning out on hot Indian summer days uh, to work in steamy Georgia for women candidates. And I couldn't have picked a finer place to be. Both sides are developing their plans B, depending on what happens when this vote comes. Lindsey Graham said if Kavanaugh is defeated, Trump should renominate him, which seems crazy to me. On the Democratic side, plan B seems to be that if Kavanaugh is confirmed and the Democrats win control of the House in November, the House Judiciary Committee would hold hearings investigating whether Kavanaugh committed perjury during his confirmation hearing. That was Representative uh, Gerald Nadler of New York, who's the top Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee. Perjury, of course, would be grounds for impeachment of a Supreme Court justice. What do you think of the different plans B? Well, I don't know what Lindsey Graham is talking about, but that's been true for a while. Other Republicans are thinking, let's rush through somebody like Amy Coney Barrett, a woman who is perhaps more conservative than Kavanaugh, but happens to be a woman with a pretty clean record as far as we know. On the Democratic side, Republicans should be very afraid of Jerry Nadler, whether it comes to whether we're talking about the Russia meddling or Michael Cohen's shenanigans or Brett Kavanaugh's shenanigans, because I think that they have already have evidence that he did perjure himself uh, in his hearings, even before the Blasey Ford allegations. I think that we have evidence that before that, he did not tell the truth when he was asked if he had used stolen Democratic documents and emails to help prepare George W. Bush appointed judges. He repeatedly uh, denied that against evidence. And he also denied ever taking part in discussions about Bush administration. Uh, let's call it torture. They called it enhanced interrogation techniques. But we've come up with some emails that show he was indeed at meetings where those things were discussed. So, uh, And then he perjured himself up and down uh, on Thursday. There are so many things. And I I just want to say for people who are our age, John, I think the Democrats' failure to investigate the Bush administration when Barack Obama took over for torture, for its war crimes, emboldened Republicans. I think that, honestly, the failure under the Bill Clinton administration to look back at Iran-Contra and investigate the lies and the, the, the law-breaking that occurred there. I think those things embolden Republicans to be even worse. And I hope that this new crop of Democrats, when they take the House, learn from those lessons and investigate the hell out of all of this. Republicans are trying to appeal to women, at least to the women in their own base. Republican mothers are being told that their sons are now in danger as a result of these hearings, that their sons can be victimized by the 
you know, accusations of uh, irrational women who are angry and uh, aggressive. Trump himself said on Tuesday at midday, this is a very scary time for young men in America, close quote. The lesson of the Kavanaugh hearings in this view is that good men will be brought down by character assassination. And if Kavanaugh is defeated, you should fear for your sons. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Oh, I have a lot of comments since I have a daughter. But what I will say to people with sons and to my nephews, if you don't sexually assault women, you will be just fine. If you don't grope women against their will, if you treat women with respect, if you respect their bodies and their minds, you'll be just fine. It's still fantastic to be a man, especially a white man in our society. There's nothing to worry about if you raise your boys to be decent people. And I think we have so much evidence, John. I believe Dr. Blasey Ford, but beyond that or corroborating that, we have so much evidence that Brett Kavanaugh was not a good young man in either high school or college. He drank to excess. He treated women poorly. He took the name of a female classmate and slurred her by calling himself a Renata alumnus, along with about 10 of his classmates, which was intended to show that they had had her, had this young woman as a sexual conquest. We have so much evidence that shows that he really, into his 20s, was a rather terrible man. So I do think that Brett Kavanaugh is an object lesson for young men. Don't be like him and you'll be fine. Don't be like Brett Kavanaugh and you'll be fine. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Hope you'll have me back. Last week, we spent many hours watching a lot of powerful old white men, Republican senators who want to confirm a Supreme Court nominee who lies under oath and who also shouts and sneers and cries during his confirmation hearing. But there are other people in politics in the United States, people who didn't go to elite private schools, whose families didn't belong to country clubs, people who didn't get into Yale, and people whose politics are different from Brett Kavanaugh's. Some of them are featured in a new book on the rise of a new radical majority. The author is D.D. Guttenplan. He was the nation's lead reporter during the 2016 election. He traveled all over the United States. We spoke with him many times on this podcast about many places he'd been from Mississippi to Montana. He's the author of several books. The new one, it's a terrific one, is titled The Next Republic. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, of all the people you wrote about, who do you think provides the sharpest contrast, the most illuminating alternative to Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch? Well, there are two people who come to mind immediately, and you'll, you'll see why two of them come to mind. The, f- the first one is Chukwe Antar Lumumba, who's the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and who therefore, as an African-American Southerner couldn't be more different <laughs> from Lindsey Graham. Yes. And not just because he looks different, but because his whole life has been based on adherence to political principle and to struggle. 
He's the son of the former mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, who was himself a longtime black nationalist lawyer who works for Tupac Shakur and many other you know, African-American artists and activists who faced long prison sentences. And that's the, that's the household that uh, Antar, as everybody calls him, that's his middle name, grew up in. And so he, he has put forward a politics in Jackson that's about empowerment, it's about black power, but it's about black power not as a separatist cause, but as a part of a larger struggle. And I thought that was really important. So that, that was one answer, and that came immediately to mind. But in some ways, the, the anti-those people, and also the anti-Brett Kavanaugh, is the person who's the subject of the last chapter in the book, and that's Zephyr Teachout. Partly because she, she, like Antar Lumumba, is a lawyer, and also, like him and unlike them, has devoted her life and her legal career to helping people who, who the odds are stacked against. But also because her whole politics is about a critique of the corporate power that underlies and underlines and underwrites their politics. And, of course, because she's always been a very visible, active, vocal woman in politics. So if I had to put together an ideal team to take on the three of them in any form you like, I would put those two on my side. I opened by talking about the horrible old white men we saw last week on the Republican side of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Of course, there's another old white man in American politics, a Democratic socialist who ran for president two years ago. Bernie was his name. And for decades, us older leftists had been told just how far outside the mainstream we and people like Bernie were. And then 2016 came along. I certainly wasn't prepared for what happened in the Democratic primaries. Uh, were you? No, I don't think anybody was prepared. I mean, I talk about it in the beginning of the book, this moment, which for me happened in the gym in uh, New Hampshire, on the night of the New Hampshire primary, which, of course, Bernie won. I set out not to cover the race as a horse race because, uh, as I told Katrina Vanden Heuvel, my editor at The Nation, I thought it was going to be a boring campaign, and I was completely wrong about that. Uh, but I did also say that I thought that it would be worth sending somebody to pay attention to the people and the movements and what people were talking about outside the sort of cable news channels. And that was, that was really my assignment. And it turned out that that's where, the, that's where the campaign ended up moving to anyway. But in this gym in, in New Hampshire, I, I wasn't there mainly to cover Bernie, although I, I vote in Vermont, so I've been voting for Bernie for a long time. I was there to see what Bernie's people and who Bernie's people were. And it was, for me, a kind of moment of astonishment because I, I looked around the gym and there were so many of us. Now, it's true that it was a Bernie Sanders rally, and it was in New Hampshire. So it was whiter than what you would consider most pre progressive crowds to be. But given that, it was incredibly diverse. You had men in union jackets. You had grandmothers in tie-dyed T-shirts. You had young people in you know, their, school, uh, their school sports team shirts. You had people of all ages in Bernie T-shirts. And we were all looking at each other like, wow, I thought I was the only one. Mm. The media has been telling us for so long that we're marginal. And, I mean, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, they don't even bother to call us communists anymore. <laughs> but, you know, the, the idea that in a country where liberal is a dirty word or a term of opprobrium that nobody will own up to, to say that you're actually 
not a liberal because you're further to the left than liberals, you felt ready to become a pariah. And instead, it turns out that we were where politics was going. And that was a revelation to me. And in a way, the book flows out of that revelation. It was, it was to say, well, what if these politics were really taken seriously? You know, leaving aside the question of Bernie himself, what if the things that, that underpin his vision that education and health care and a place to live are, are human rights and should be guaranteed for everyone. What if those things were taken seriously? What would that mean to our politics? How could we get there? And where does that kind of majoritarian or left populist, however one you, you want to describe it, where does that politics come from in our history? Because I, I discovered pretty quickly that it wasn't something completely new. It was something rather that had been repressed and suppressed and it was breaking out. And I wanted to look at both where it was breaking out and where it had been before. You open your new book, The Next Republic, with a chapter on winning under conditions of extreme adversity, a great topic and certainly an urgent one for us right now. Tell us about that. So the book is um, six chapters that are portraits of activists whom ideally most of your listeners wouldn't have heard very much about. So it's not a port, they're not portraits of Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or people like that. They're portraits of people who I think are doing not just interesting but essential work, but who, who aren't yet, yet so well known. And, so, and also who represent one piece or another of what I consider to be this majority, emerging majority coalition. And the first chapter, and it definitely has to be the first chapter, is about Jane McAlevey, who's a union organizer and labor activist and author. And Jane is an incredibly compelling figure for lots of reasons, but I suppose the main one is because she has absolutely no tolerance for bullshit. So I, was, I begin the chapter by talking about a conversation I had with her at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, where... I was waxing on about how we were going to have to push Hillary Clinton to the left in the in the incoming Clinton administration that at that point we all assumed we were about to have and she just interrupted me and said she hasn't closed the deal and I said what do you mean and she said oh, I've been working organizing nurses in hospitals so I've been talking to women about politics for weeks and the women I've been talking to a lot of them are the kind of suburban women whom Hillary is clearly banking on to carry her to victory and she hasn't closed the deal with them. And I was like, well, what do you mean? How could that be? And so she laid out to me what she thought was happening, which turned out to be absolutely right. And also her own work, which was the work of organizing from the ground up in conditions of extreme adversity, union campaigns in sometimes in, in right-to-work states, and winning again and again and again. In Nevada, she put together this hospital workers' union that won incredible contracts, and that Nevada's a right-to-work state. So we look around and we see Trump and Pence and Kavanaugh, and even without Kavanaugh, we, you know, we, see, we see Gorsuch and we think it's just hopeless. And yet Jane is somebody who goes into situations again and again and again that you and I might consider hopeless, and she just goes in and gets it done. And not only that, she's very methodical about how she gets it done and how to win under those conditions and what you have to do and how you have to listen to people and talk to people and put together a program of action. And I just thought this is exactly what people need to know about. One of the key themes of your book is that even though 
Trump's victory in 2016 was a horrifying wake-up call. Now we should be looking forward rather than backward. What do you think are the most promising directions where we should be looking right now? What did people that you talked to suggest about where to focus our energy and our political work now? Well, I think we have to be looking in lots of different directions at once. I mean, that's the thing. If you have endless money behind you, you can assemble a coalition of the bought and of those in whose interests it is to defend privilege. If you're trying to take that on, then, and that's why the word majority is in the subtitle of the book, you have to put together a majority coalition. Jane said something really important to me. She said, if you give up organizing in in large numbers, you give up the only weapon that ordinary working people have, which is our, which is our numbers, our preponderance of numbers. Great. So, you know, how do we get to a majority? Well, you have to have labor. That's what that chapter is about. But you also have to have the environmental movement, climate justice, and you have to have racial justice, and you have to have immigrant rights. And all of these fights are actually happening. So the, the, the key is to both attend to these fights that are happening near you, wherever you are, and to see how do they fit together and how do we get the people who are involved in them to be aware of and supportive of each other. I mean, you know, if there's a cardinal virtue for the left, it has to be solidarity. For a historian, the biggest question about our politics over the last 75 years probably is, whatever happened to the New Deal? What happened to the Roosevelt Republic in the 30s and 40s that really changed what Americans thought government could do. I know that's one of the questions you take up in your book, The Next Republic. Well, it's it's not just one of the questions. It's the reason that the chapter about the Roosevelt Republic is the longest chapter in the book. Okay. And, and part of that is because, you know, if you report presidential campaigns, as I just did, you spend a lot of time in Ohio because Ohio is, you know, a battleground state. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed traveling around Ohio was I would see these things that were like they were like ruins of a of a alien civilization. I'd be walking down a street in Akron, Ohio, and I'd see this incredible building with beautiful architecture, pillars and pilasters and I'd walk inside and there'd be murals on the wall and it was a post office. Or, you know, a public library in Cleveland with these incredible murals of the building of the bridge over the Ohio River. And you think, well, what is it? What is the civilization that built this stuff? And you realize the civilization that built this stuff was the New Deal. And all over America, particularly in the places where we once had, you know, an industrial heartland, you see these relics of the New Deal and the relics of a time when First of all, ordinary people felt the government was on their side and belonged to them. And secondly, when the government felt it was its job to guarantee people basic rights. And so it became an, an obsession with me to figure out, well, what happened to that? How did it, how was it dissolved? And the answer to that is complicated, which is why the chapter is long. But if I had to simplify it, I would say it dissolved in two in two waves. One was the wave of neoliberal economics, which basically sold everybody on the con that a federal government budget is like your household budget, and therefore that you have to cut spending to equal income at all times under all conditions, uh, which is insane. Uh, and the second was uh, the Red Scare. And what, what effect that had 
the fact that the Democratic Party and so many labor unions signed up to the Red Scare and purged so many of their most dedicated activists in the 40s and 50s, and that hollowing out of the kind of movement for justice in America, so that it, it basically stayed buried until it was woken in the, in the fight for racial justice, but that was only in the South. You know, you had people who had been red-baited out of unions, and suddenly they could come back into politics through civil rights, but that didn't happen in places like Ohio or western Pennsylvania or West Virginia. The purge, the political purge in those areas stayed permanent. You quote Naomi Klein in your introduction saying, no is not enough. We also need to lay out our yes. What does that mean? Well, that struck me as really important. It really resonated with me because if you, if you look at all the millions of mostly women who came out with their pink hats when Trump was inaugurated, they knew and we know what we're against. You know, we're against Trump and Trumpism. And this, you have this amorphous thing called the resistance. But the resistance isn't going to get us to the next republic. Being against, being in opposition is not going to be enough. We have to say what we're for, not just what we're against. And we have to say what we're for in a way that unites all of these different strands of struggle. When things look dark, it's good to be reminded of what's possible. And that's exactly what D.D. Guttenplan does in his new book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. It's out now from Seven Stories Press. Don, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Take care. Now it's time for your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Today, Minneapolis has passed a $15 minimum wage, but St. Paul has not. They're supposed to be the Twin Cities. So what's up with that? For some answers, we turn to Michelle Chen. She's a contributing writer at The Nation and also contributing editor at Descent Magazine. Michelle Chen, welcome back. Hi, thanks. First, tell us about Minneapolis and how Minneapolis got to a $15 minimum wage. Yeah, Minneapolis um, was one of the first Midwestern cities to join the Fight for 15 movement. It's got a pretty strong uh, progressive pro-labor strand, um, and so they're sort of a beachhead for this uh, national movement that's been steadily gaining ground, you know, for the past um, over five years now, and it started out with the coasts. Um, as you know, New York and California have already uh, put themselves on track to uh, phase into a $15 uh, minimum wage. Seattle uh, is right now just starting to roll out its first batch of uh, fully-fledged $15 wages, um, so different cities are on different timelines. Do you have any theories about why St. Paul is behind Minneapolis in this? Is it just because St. Paul is always behind Minneapolis in everything? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, (laughs) uh, the same arguments that are lining up against the fight for 15 in Minneapolis and now in St. Paul um, are pretty much a cookie-cutter carbon copy of what we see um, around the country. So it's usually, you know, the restaurant lobby, crying wolf about how so many small businesses are going to get shut down because these $15 wages will crush them. 
um, or people trying to ingest little little carve-outs, for instance, by preserving a lower wage tier for tipped workers. And so right now, the focus is on everybody seems to be generally on board with a $15 uh, wage floor and the devil's in the details. So they do seem to be moving towards it. Let's talk about that argument that a higher minimum wage will hurt uh, businesses, especially restaurants, and force many of them to close. Is there any actual research on this? Yeah. um, Coincidentally, uh, right around the time that the Fight for 15 campaign started heating up in St. Paul, um, some researchers at University of California, Berkeley, they, uh, they actually came out with a study sort of assessing uh, how different cities had dealt with the uh, minimum wage phase-in, and they're all on track to go towards $15 an hour. And they looked at, um, earlier they looked at Seattle, and this time they looked at a broader array of cities, and they found that it actually did what it promised to do, which is raise wages. But the key point that they wanted to underscore was that there were no real discernible impacts on employment. So that means the Fight for 15 both raised wages and didn't damage jobs. And what does the Fight for 15 movement say about this idea of a lower wage for tipped workers? Actually, there's been an interesting development in the Fight for 15 over time because as they realized that many cities were generally getting on board with the $15 minimum wage level, but they were um, often preserving some kind of exemption for the tipped minimum wage. Um, They actually are advocating now for something called one fair wage, which is not just uh, an overall wage for $15 an hour, but also ensuring that tipped workers as well um, get on that same wage force. In most of the places where the fight for 15 have, has succeeded in, at least in some respects in, in cities, the workers who will benefit most from $15 an hour are not in unions. What, what is the role of unions in the fight for 15 and, and which unions are we talking about? The, the fight for 15 movement and you know, the, basically the slogan um, was, incubated by a coalition of uh, the SEIU and a lot of community advocacy groups in, um, in New York, actually. Um, that was you know, sort of the initial uh, place where the Fight for 15 protests sort of erupted um, several years ago. Um, and so it was, I guess you could say, spearheaded by a union effort. And unions have historically been behind you know, minimum wage campaigns as a way to mobilize the public and to sort of get labor behind, you know, campaigns that are generally pretty publicly palatable. I mean, there are very few people when you poll voters. I mean, it's just generally seen as a good thing. And I think this is where collective mindset has kind of been preserved. Um, People understand that raising the base wage for the poorest workers who are, as you said, often very marginalized and and often non-union, will have a ripple effect throughout the workforce. And that will, in turn, push up the overall wage levels and the prevailing wage levels in industries where there are um, significant uh, presences of unions. And when they do their collective bargaining, they have a higher base uh, from which to start. 
and it's a way to combat, I guess, some of the negative stereotypes of unions being only for their own members, because this is something that uh, basically affects you know, the entire jurisdiction, whether you're talking about everyone in the city or, um, or everyone across the state or even on the federal level. You can find more information about this campaign at the website 15nowmn.org. 15nowmn.org. They list the members of the 15 Now Minnesota Coalition. It includes the SEIU, AFSME, the Teamsters, Unite Here, the nurses, the teachers, the communication workers, and the food and commercial workers. Uh, so there is a broad front of unions behind the fight for 15 in Minnesota. Oh, and I just wanted to add, too, um, that once the $15 minimum wage is passed in any area, the enforcement is really key. So as St. Paul moves closer towards passing the legislation, they're learning from other cities about how the labor authorities in the Twin Cities can really uh, ramp up their efforts to make sure that employers are adhering to that wage. Because if it's continually violated, you know, a $15 minimum wage isn't really meaningful anyway. So enforcement is really where the focus is on now. Michelle Chen wrote about the fight for 15 in Minnesota and around the country for The Nation magazine. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine sports editor. This week, Dave talks about Brett Kavanaugh, high school sports, and toxic masculinity. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.